Thank you for turning out on this lovely uh, June evening. Uh, my name is Toby Dodge and I'm your chair for tonight. And I labour under the august title of Director of the Middle East Centre here at LSE. And I'd like a bit more light, otherwise I can't read my <laughs> um, It's my great pleasure to invite, uh, to welcome one speaker and four discussants. So you have a feast of five speakers. This is going to be an ongoing theme. Uh, our main speaker tonight is Professor Michael Link, who's an Associate Professor at the Faculty of Law, Western University in London, Ontario. But much more importantly, it, well, at least importantly for tonight, I'm sure not for uh, London, Ontario, in March 2016, the United Nations Human Rights Council appointed Professor Link the seventh special rapporteur for, for the human rights situation in the Palestinian territories occupied since 1967. In his capacity, he reports to the United Nations General Assembly and the Human Rights Council. Then we have uh, four discussants. I'll read them in a new order. First, my old friend and colleague, Dr. Victor Katan, who's a senior research fellow at the Middle East Institute and an associate fellow at the Faculty of Law at the wonderful National University of Singapore. I think Victor's famous for his book, From Coexistence to Conquest, International Law and the Origins of the Arab-Israeli Dispute. Secondly, we have <laughs> Valentino, Valentina um, Arora. Thank you very much. Is an international law researcher and a practitioner who focuses on Israel-Palestine and a postdoctoral fellow at the Centre for Global Law at Koch University in Istanbul and a legal advisor to Global Legal Action Network. Thirdly, another friend and colleague, uh, Frederica Vicky, who is an Associate Professor of International Relations of Europe um, and its near abroad, I suppose, um, in the Department of International Relations at LSC. Uh, first, uh, uh, research interests focus on European foreign policy and its southern neighbourhoods, and she's published the European foreign policy uh, making towards the Mediterranean in 2007, as well as a host of other um, articles in learned journals. Um, and then, finally, we have uh, Hugh Lovett, who is a policy fellow, uh, uh, work, who is the Israel-Palestine uh, policy coordinator at the European Council for Foreign Relations, Middle East and North Africa program. And prior to that, he worked uh, for the International Crisis Group and was a Schumann fellow in the European Parliament focusing on Middle East policy. Michael has promised me solemnly he'll only speak for half an hour. And then we have uh, seven to ten minutes from each of our uh, respondents. Michael, do you want to speak from the panel? I will. That's great. Is that, that's my direction to take center stage. Excellent. Take, okay. take, take us away. First of all, a great thanks to, uh, to the invitation to come and speak at uh, the London School of Economics. It's such an important conference. I'm feeling terrifically honored to, uh, to be here. And you're going to be, if you like, guinea pigs because I'm going to be trying out a new idea, a, a thought experiment um, that may well be um, in, which I'm hoping will be, in the next report that I make to the United Nations. And if I can just explain for a minute before I begin my, uh, my presentation, as special rapporteur, I'm one of 55 or 56 different international human rights experts who have been appointed to a specific mandate by the UN Human Rights Council most of the uh, uh, human rights uh, special rapporteurs have a theme, uh, special rapporteur for food, for housing, on torture, on extrajudicial execution. 
But there are 14 of us, I believe, 14 or 15, who have a country focus. Uh, North Korea, Myanmar, um, Belarus, Cote d'Ivoire, um, and the occupied Palestinian territories. Among other things that we do as part of our mandate to observe human rights, we issue two relatively lengthy uh, reports a year, one in the fall to the United Nations in uh, New York, one in March to the um, Human Rights Council in, uh, in Geneva. And I've, since I've taken my position in May of 2016, I've issued two reports. They can be found on the uh, UN website that's devoted to my particular mandate. But the one in the fall was on uh, the right to development and basically ways in which the Palestinian economy is, uh, is contracting under the Israeli occupation. The special report in March had to do with the plight of Israeli and Palestinian human rights defenders who are focused on the occupation. And I invite you to, uh, to wind up reading them if you can bear the UNEs that they have to be written in. Um, so my report, my next report is I'm intending it to write on a more controversial topic, one that I think will probably draw more either more bouquets or more bricks being thrown at me. It's going to be on the issue of, is the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territory still legal after 50 years? And that's what I wanted to lay out for you tonight. I realize that I'm speaking to a mixed uh, legal and non-legal audience, and I'm trying to make sure that my presentation to you is going to be um, understandable to you all. Um, I'm going to be referring to different aspects of uh, international humanitarian law, IHL, international human rights law, IHRL, uh, to, to make out my argument. Um, and I'm happy to be able to be um, either praised or criticized by my panelists afterwards. And I'm happy to take, obviously, uh, questions from the audience as well. And I hope during the course of my presentation tonight, I will explain to you why... This is not just a academic legal seminar question, but actually, I think, would have importance in the real world. So, reading the calendar of memorialized dates in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a pitiless affair. And this is particularly true for any year ending in the, in the year seven. A century ago, 1917, marked the issuance of the Belfort Declaration, and the British endorsement of the Zionist movement's vision of a Jewish homeland in Palestine, a land at the time with an overwhelming Arab-Palestinian population. 1937 witnessed, in the midst of the first sustained Palestinian revolt, the release of the Peel Commission report, which endorsed for the first time in official circles the partition of Palestine into two states, as well as the exchange of populations to make this happen. Ten years later, in 1947, the United Nations General Assembly adopted Resolution 181, approving a much differently configured partition plan for Palestine by awarding a majority of the territory, 55%, for a Jewish state. Over the next year, the struggle over Palestine would turn, to a, would turn a fateful historical corner. In 1957, in a rare occasion of big power foresightedness, the United States exercised its particular diplomatic might to compel Israel to give up its ambitions to hold on to the Egyptian Sinai and Gaza that had conquered during the Suez War the year before. In 1967, Israel defeated three Arab armies and captured the Egyptian Sinai, the Syrian Golan Heights, 
and the remaining parts of Mandate Palestine, Gaza, East Jerusalem, and the West Bank. The first Palestinian intifada broke out in 1987, a largely unarmed uprising against the then 20-year-old occupation, and which would lead to the Oslo Accords six years later. In 2007, Israel initiated its punishing blockade of Gaza, which effectively sealed the air, land, and sea borders of Gaza and reduced its shrunken economy and living standards to a prolonged humanitarian crisis. Which brings us to 2017. This year, we're commemorating the 50th anniversary of the world's longest military occupation, an occupation that is becoming more entrenched with each passing year and with no foreseeable endpoint on its horizon. Our intellectual responsibility is to make sense of this profound predicament against the backdrop of this tragic history. Our responsibility is also to try to imagine a way forward that both honors the rights of all the peoples enveloped in this conflict and that points to political destinations that are shaped by the universal principles of equality, self-determination, dignity, and human rights. My focus this evening is to pose and explore a question of international law that I am not advancing as a question that attempts to tidy up a messy uh, academic theorem, but rather one that could, and I believe should, have significant political as well as legal ramifications for the occupation and the conflict. The question I want to explore with you is this. Is Israel's occupation of the Palestinian territory, East Jerusalem, Gaza, and the West Bank, which I shall refer to as the OPT, still lawful under the principles of international law? And if, and if the occupation has exceeded its lawful status, what then might be the implications for the international community in ending the occupation? I raise these questions as a serious point of law and of diplomacy that could well become part of the composite key that could unlock this conflict. While I'm not the first person to address these questions, it's my hope that by exploring the issue in this particular forum, and in a forthcoming report to the United Nations, it may gain some meaningful traction in the wider world. So in the brief time that I have before you tonight, I plan to do three related things. I first want to lay out several reasons why international law is important to addressing and resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Then, at the heart of my uh, presentation, I want to offer a dynamic and persuasive reading of international humanitarian and human rights law that will help us assess whether the ongoing occupation by Israel is still lawful, and if not, and then what are the legal and political implications of such a conclusion. And third, I want to, I want to reach back into history, back to 1971, to review an important judicial and diplomatic precedent that I will argue provides us with a framework and a guide to addressing the ongoing legal question regarding the Israeli occupation of Palestine. So, let me begin off with the importance of international law. At its highest, international law is the promise that nations make to one another to respect their commitments to human rights and humanitarian norms, and to all the other vital areas of a rules-based modern global order. If used wisely and purposefully, it is one of the very best tools that we have in the international arena to protect the weak against the deprecations of the strong. But as many of us in this room know, there are, true, uh, there are few truly effective self-executing mechanisms 
in international law outside of the mercantile areas of investment protection and free trade agreements, leaving the noblest of our international covenants to be defended only in the realm of shaming within the diplomatic sphere and through the activism of civil society. And indeed, when we turn to the role of international law in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, we come across a great and tragic paradox. On the one hand, this conflict, more than any other conflict since the Second World War, has contributed greatly to the development of rulemaking, the laws of war, the scope of humanitarian and human rights law, the rights of refugees, the centrality of self-determination, the laws on terrorism, the illegality of civilian settlements in occupied territory, and the inadmissibility of the acquisition of territory by war, among others. All of these key facets of international humanitarian law and international human, uh, human rights law have been significantly shaped and enriched and deepened by the norms established by the copious UN resolutions, the multitude of diplomatic statements, the judicial pronouncements, and the voluminous legal commentary on the many features of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Yet, at the same time, the efficacy of international law has suffered significantly because the principal actors most intimately involved in the management of the Middle East conflict have insistently marginalized law as a diplomatic tool in shaping a lasting and just peace in the Middle East. Most of the major modern agreements and documents on this conflict, beginning with the Madrid and Oslo processes in the early 1990s, have been almost completely silent on the many cornerstone legal statements on the conflict. Yes, we see regular references to UN Security Council Resolution 242 from 1967 and to the Two-State Vision Resolution 1397 endorsed in 2002 by the UN Security Council. But aside from that, I think we're going to look in vain to the other foundational legal principles in any of the concerted peace process meetings over the last two decades, such as the multiple UN Security Council resolutions on the illegality of settlements and the unlawful annexation of East Jerusalem, the United Nations General Assembly resolutions on the refugees, and the Arab Peace Plan from 2002 in any of the contemporary peace process conferences, such as the 1998 Y River Declaration, Camp David in 2000, the 2003 Roadmap, the 2007 Annapolis Process, or the Kerry Initiative in 2013 and 2014. The clear obligations of international law have been treated as a sidelight irritant, irrelevant if not an actual barrier to the diplomatic and political process of peacemaking. As, Vic, as Professor Victor Canton has succinctly stated, and I'm quoting him, the problem is not international law per se, but its lack of enforcement, that in the Middle East, international law is closer to power than to justice, unquote. In this conflict, the occupying power is insistent that international law does not apply. The international mediating powers have shown no great interest in pressing the occupying power to obey international law and the occupied people, for whom international law would substantially improve their weakened bargaining power, have no real power to insist upon its application. Thus, the tragedy that has become for all of the substantive body of international law developed over the past decades, the actual victims of the conflict, those for whom international law should be devoted to working on behalf of, 
have seen precious few of the benefits and protections that the international community has promised them. Yet international law can do better. As a moral statement, it has enormous authority to inspire fair-minded people and mobilize the indispensable energy of NGOs and civil society to employ it as a vital campaign tool. As a political statement, it is an inviolable tool to insist that political leaders and diplomatic representatives actually honor and enforce what they have endorsed and then forgotten about. And as a legal strategy, the growing convergence of international law and domestic law means that it is a rich available tool of litigation, both in the global courts, such as the International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Court, and increasingly in domestic courts as well. International law has the great potential to modify the unequal bargaining field between the parties to the conflict, so that the grossly asymmetrical power that presently exists between Israeli, Israel and the Palestinians does not continue to distort the negotiating process and to predict, predictably lead to yet another failure in, in a peace process. International law will not all by itself bring about a just and durable peace in the Middle East, but I submit that its perpetual and deliberate absence from all of the many peace process efforts over the past 25 years has contributed greatly to the quagmire that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is in today. So now turning to my second theme, and that goes to the principal uh, topic for tonight's um, question. Can an occupation become illegal? And if so, what are the consequences arising from that? This is not a question that can be answered by a literal reading of the principal instruments of international humanitarian law, the 1907 Hague Regulations, the 1949 Fourth Geneva Convention, or the 1977 Additional Protocol Number 1 on the Fourth Geneva Convention. On this very question with respect to legality and illegality, these instruments are silent. But I submit that a purpose of reading of these documents leads us to the conclusion that an occupation run in bad faith by an occupying power becomes at some point illegal, and then it falls to the international community to assume its responsibility to bring the state of illegality to an end. So before taking you through my approach to this question as to whether a prolonged or interminable occupation can cross the line into illegality, let me very briefly lay out four preliminary tenets which are going to shape the background of what I want to tell you. Number one, whether a territory has been captured through a war, either a war of aggression or a war of self-defense, the modern laws of occupation and international humanitarian law apply in full to the occupied territory. Thus, even if a war was commenced unlawfully, the United States and Iraq, for example, the occupation that follows is considered to be lawful and the occupying power is compelled to honor the restrictions and obligations of international humanitarian law in their entirety. This rule is obviously for the benefit of the occupied people and the ousted sovereign and imposes strict obligations on the occupying power which I shall come to. Number two, in our modern era, we've reached the stage where sovereignty independence and self-determination are the overwhelming prevailing norms in international relations and any type of interruption or vanquishing of these presumptive norms through occupation or the denial of independence are understood in international law as a unique 
and temporary exception, which must be strictly justified by the authority that is inhibiting their exercise. And the longer the interruption to sovereignty and self-determination, the higher the onus that is borne by the party causing the interruption to justify the prolonged delay in restoring or achieving the status quo. Third, the foundational documents of international humanitarian law and international human rights law are constantly evolving to adapt to the changing reality in in the world. Thus, these documents ought to be interpreted in what I call a liberal and living tree fashion, much like modern constitutions. If we employ reasoning that builds upon the protective purpose of these documents within their natural and justifiable boundaries, then we can encourage the growth of new branches to these living trees that are adaptable to the new and changing circumstances, even if the original document is silent or vague on the question being posed. This living tree approach goes to the very heart of the work that judges and courts and legal academics employ all the time. And the fourth and final preliminary point I want to make is that the Israeli occupation of the OPT has been commonly accepted by much of the world as a lawful occupation, albeit with some clearly illegal features to it, such as the ever-expanding settlement enterprise, the promiscuous use of collective punishment, and the annexation of East Jerusalem and parts of the West Bank. Within official diplomatic circles, there has never been an effort, serious or otherwise, to determine whether the occupation, because of its length, its persistent violations of many of the norms of international humanitarian and human rights law, or, most fundamentally, its denial of Palestinian self-determination, has transformed itself into its opposite, into an illegal occupation. Indeed, much of the world community has learned to live with the oxymoron of what, I, what, what one Israeli group has called an occu-annexation, or a tem-permanent state of affairs. So to restate the question before us, if all military occupations start off as lawful, regardless of the characterization of the war that led to the occupation, can an occupation at some point become illegal? I'm going to argue that the question, the answer to that question is yes. And I'm going to briefly lay out for you the criteria that I proposed to judge this by. I'm going to advance five criteria all of which is anchored in the fundamental precepts of international humanitarian law. And if some of all of these criteria are violated by the occupying power, then I submit that may well lead to the conclusion that the occupation has crossed the line into illegality. As you can guess, as you can tell by now, I I like to read by lists and tell you four points and then five points. I'm known as the professor of lists back at my law school, and I'm hoping this is making it easier for you to to follow what I'm saying. So of the five principles I want to take you through, the first one, the first fundamental principle of international humanitarian law is the no-annexation rule. The military occupation of a territory gives the occupying power absolutely no claim or title or sovereignty over any of the lands that it's occupying. This core principle is located in Article 2 of the Charter of the, Human, uh, of the United Nations, and it's one of the key achievements of the post-Second World War consensus. We see this key principle reiterated in numerous 
resolutions of the Security Council and the General Assembly pertaining to the Arab-Israeli conflict, most recently in the UN Security Council Resolution 2334 that was passed on the 23rd of December 2016 with respect to Israeli settlements, which affirmed, and here I'm quoting, the inadmissibility of the acquisition of territory by force, unquote. This is best expressed by the famous dictum by Lassa Oppenheim, who wrote in 1907 that there is, quote, there is not an atom of sovereignty in the authority of the occupying power, unquote. It is, it is virtually universally accepted among international legal scholars that the right of conquest, regardless of the military, political, or diplomatic disguise that it may take, has been an utterly defunct principle in law for the past 70 years. The second principle, fundamental principle I want to derive from in international humanitarian law is that military occupation is an inherently temporary condition. It's neither permanent nor is it even indefinite. Uh, Jean Piquet, Piquet, the authoritative commentator on the Geneva Conventions, wrote in 1958 that, quote, the occupation of territory in wartime is essentially a temporary de facto situation which deprives the occupied power of neither its statehood nor its sovereignty. It merely interferes with its power to exercise its rights. The laws of occupation impose such strict limitations on the authority of the occupying power. Its responsibilities include the maintenance of the pre-existing legal system, the economy and civil life in the occupied territory, um, as much as possible, and the only changes that can be made are those that are justified strictly as security and humanitarian necessity would require. I would argue that if freedom, liberty, and self-determination are the legally protected norms of modern life, and their absence are the exception, that an occupying power is compelled to ensure that an occupation is conducted in as short a period of time as is reasonably necessary to achieve stability in the occupied territory and to be able to securely and completely hand authority back to the inherent sovereign power, which is the people of the territory. In other words, once an occupation begins, the clock starts running and the ticking gets louder as time advances. The third core principle is that the occupying power must govern the occupied territory as a, as a trustee or fiduciary, ruling with the best interests of the occupied people in mind as per Article 30, 43 of the 1907 Hague Regulations. The principal exception to this core rule is, again, security. The occupying power is entitled to take the necessary steps to ensure stability and the maintenance of public order commensurate with the principles of human rights. Otherwise, the occupying power is to ensure that the civil life of the protected people under occupation, their economy, their laws, their customs, their social services and well-being, and their natural wealth are preserved for their benefit. This means that the exploitation by the occupying power of the wealth, the property, or the natural resources of the occupied territory <clears throat> is wholly restricted to military necessity that which is required to sustain the presence of the armed forces and its administrative capacity, and nothing more. Exploiting the natural resources and the wealth of the, of the occupied territory as plunder or enrichment 
or to benefit the economy of the occupied power is strictly forbidden. The fourth key principle is that the occupying power must comply with all of the governing principles of international humanitarian law and international human rights law, primarily in the form, as I've mentioned, of the Hague Regulations of 1907, the Fort Geneva Convention of 1949, and the 1977 Additional Protocol. They lay out a comprehensive set of rules that are intended to ensure the primacy of the three fundamental rules I've just mentioned. These include the prohibition, the strict prohibition, against the settlement of civilians in the occupied territory, no collective punishment, the preservation and respect for private property, the protection of prisoners, no pillage, no deportations or reprisals, among others. I submit that the occasional or incidental breach of any of these governing rules may not be sufficient to violate this core principle, but a pattern of continuous or flagrant violations and or the sustained defiance by the occupying power of the directions of the international community certainly would amount to a breach of this. And the fifth and final principle I'm going to put to you is that the occupying power must act in accordance with these four core principles in good faith. Good faith is a well-known legal concept in many domestic legal systems throughout the world. It permeates virtually all legal relationships, both public and private, and it is well placed at the heart of international public and private law. We find this in the statute of the International Court of Justice, in the Charter of, of the United Nations, and in the Vienna Convention on the Laws of Treaties, all primary instruments in international law. They all tell us that good faith now amounts to a general principle of international law. As well, we find this in a plethora of other major treaties and declarations, the Friendly, the Friendly Relations Declaration of 1970, the, the Rome Statute on the International Criminal Court in 1998, and the Manila Declaration on the Peaceful Settlement of International Disputes from 1982. Good faith is the test that best captures the elements of trust, honesty, fairness, loyalty, reasonableness, and purpose of conduct that are the legal and social glue that lead us to a reliable performance of solemn undertakings and promises that underline the international legal system. So, if you don't mind, one more list. To recapture the five principles that I've mentioned, no annexation of occupied territory, occupation is inherently temporary, and the occupying power must leave as soon as reasonably possible uh, where stability has been regained. The occupying power, while running the occupation, acts as a trustee of fiduciary in the best interests of the uh, protected people in the occupied territory. The occupying power must fully comply with the full range of protections and responsibilities and uh, embedded international law. And the occupying power's conduct is measured by its good faith efforts to honor all of these core principles. Now, having laid out these principles, why do I say that the failure to carry them out would amount to a finding that an occupation has now crossed the bright red line and become illegal? Well, I'm anchoring part of my analysis, a significant part of my analysis, at least for tonight, in an important precedent in international law. A famous 1971 advisory opinion of the International Court of Justice, which is the United Nations' high, uh, highest judicial body, dealing with the mandate held by South Africa over Namibia or Southwest Africa since 1922. 
I'm pleased by seeing a relatively young crowd here. I don't see too many people with gray hair like myself, so I may be giving you a fresh lesson when I talk about Namibia. Uh, my discussion to follow on Namibia is the last part of my presentation. But before embarking upon this section, I want to draw from an observation that the International Court of Justice made in its 1971 decision on Namibia, where it stated, and I'm quoting, one of the fundamental principles governing the international relationship thus established is that a party which disowns or does not fulfill its own obligations cannot be recognized as retaining the rights which it claims to derive from the relationship. Now, the International Court of Justice went on to say that a relationship um, can be terminated where, and I'm quoting, a deliberate and persistent violation of obligations has occurred which destroys the very object and purpose of that relationship. And elsewhere in the decision, the court also used the terms flagrant and prolonged abuse of this trust, gross violation of the mandate, and fundamental breaches of an international undertaking. Keep those terms in mind. The fact that the governing international instrument or treaty may be silent on the existence of the right of termination, the international court said, does not mean that it does not exist, i.e. the right of termination. Because the principle that a mandate or a power or an authority or an occupying power can be brought to an end for a serious breach of a responsibility or undertaking, it said, exists as a general principle in international law. So, let me turn now to the 1971 advisory opinion that the ICJ gave excuse me, in Namibia. The story may be broadly familiar to some of you, and I'll, I'll just provide a few brief background facts. Between 1950 and 1971, the International Court of Justice released a series of rulings and advisory opinions on the status of Southwest Africa, which we know now today as Namibia. Back in 1922, at the, uh, at the treaties that ended the First World War, the colonies of the former colonies of Germany were divided up. Um, actually, I should say the former colonies of Germany and the Ottoman Empire uh, were divided up among various European powers. And of course, Palestine was one of those uh, mandate powers that was given uh, to, to Britain. Southwest Africa had been a German colony. It was given to South Africa as a mandate in 1922. Um, after the Second World War, the League of Nations mandate now trans to the United Nations mandate, which South Africa then wound up disputing. And the principal purpose, the reason why this all began to occur was because South Africa was beginning to treat Southwest Africa as its fifth province. It, it had introduced the laws of apartheid. It had created electoral districts which were set up by the National Party, the ruling party in South Africa, knowing that it would reliably return all 10 MPs from Southwest Africa back to the parliament to support the nationalist government. Beginning in 1950, leading through the 1960s and 1970s, we have this rapid era of decolonialization in the world. And the scores of new countries joining the United Nations from Africa and Asia, the Caribbean and the Pacific began to bring the issue of Southwest Africa to the attention of the United Nations General Assembly. And they began to bring they then began to bring um, advisory opinion requests to the International Court of Justice. Um, 
There were a number of important rulings, but the most important ruling of all was the one in 1971. The, Interna the General Assembly passed a resolution in 1966 declaring that Britain's, uh, sorry, that South Africa's mandate over Southwest Africa was illegal. In 1970, the UN Security Council passed a very similar resolution to that, and then asked for a, an advisory opinion from the um, International Court of Justice. And the International Court of Justice delivered this in June of 1971. There are many striking features between the court's ruling on Namibia and the present situation in the OPT. However, I do want to acknowledge there's one important difference. So if Africa's rule over Namibia arose from the League of Nations mandate, while Israel's occupation, obviously, is governed by the laws of occupation, primarily found in the Fourth Geneva Convention. I submit, however, that this is, a diff this is a quantitative difference, not a qualitative difference, because of the similarity in purpose between the two governing documents, as I will lay out for you. The 1971 ICJ ruling on Namibia is rich in its reasoning, and it deserves, in many ways, a lecture all by itself. But let me just lay out dare I say it, six important rulings, <laughs> points of this, which will be bringing my lecture to a close with respect to this. First of all, the International Court of Justice stated that there are three core principles that all mandatory holders must comply with. One, the mandatory power has no right of annexation of any mandate territory. Two, it must act as a trustee for the well-being and development of the people in the mandate territory. And three, the mandatory power cannot introduce discriminatory laws and practices that disadvantages the peoples of the mandate, which obviously was a reference to South Africa's introduction of apartheid laws into Namibia. The second important thing that I draw from uh, the decision was the principle of self-determination, which was the ultimate purpose of all of these League of Mandate um, um, mandates and which brings the mandate to a successful close. The third important feature that we can extract from the Namibia ruling is that the deliberate and persistent violation of these core principles of the mandate would amount to a fundamental breach of an international undertaking and would therefore, therefore destroy the foundation of the mandate relationship. Fourth, the ICJ's ruling that South Africa's mandate over Namibia was illegal and now withdrawn did not in any way remove the full protections of the mandate for the peoples of Namibia. In other words, while South Africa's administrative and military presence in, in Southwest Africa or Namibia was now illegal, it must strictly comply as long as it still stayed there with the protections of the mandate for the benefit of the peoples of Namibia. Number five, the fifth compelling point from the 1971 decision was their use on a number of occasions of the good faith test to judge whether South Africa was in compliance or not with the governing principles of the mandate. And the sixth and final point that we can lift from the um, Namibia decision are the factors that persuaded the court that South Africa's continuing governance of Namibia violated the mandate and, and passed the tipping point of legality. The main evidentiary point that persuaded evidentiary points that persuaded the court were these. One, the mandate had lasted much longer than was necessary to enable the peoples of Namibia to achieve self-determination, and given South Africa's pronouncements and practices, there was no meaningful path for, to, into, uh, in, to independence 
for Namibia on the horizon. And can anybody do any quick arithmetic? The, the mandate was started in 1922, and this ruling was in 1971. So how many years is that? 49 years, okay. Just, just curious. Two, South Africa had taken de facto steps to annex parts of Namibia, including the creation of, of approximately 10 or so, as I've mentioned, all-white election constituencies for the South African Parliament. Thirdly, the introduction and enforcement of discriminatory laws and practices that distinguished on the basis of race to the disadvantage of the indigenous Namibians. Is that from the heat or is that for me? Both. I'm almost done. I promise. Okay. But when you ask a professor to speak, eh, we spend 15 minutes just clearing our throat. But I'm almost done, I promise. And fourth, South Africa's persistent defiance of the numerous resolutions of, this, of the United Nations General Assembly and Security Council calling for an end to the discriminatory practices and then an end to the mandate itself. Time does not permit me tonight to review in any detail a similar sheet of evidence with respect to Israel and its administration of the occupation of Palestine. But let me just lay out extremely briefly um, my analysis with respect to what's going on in the OPT against the principles that I've mentioned. Number one, obviously, the absolute rule against annexation. This was breached by Israel in June of 1967 when it created, in its words, the municipal fusion of West Jerusalem and East Jerusalem and the surrounding parts of the West Bank. It solidified this annexation with a formal declaration of annexing Jerusalem in 1980. The international community today, in one of its many wall-to-wall consensus points, regards East Jerusalem as occupied territory and Israel's annexation as illegal. Two, the rule that um, occupations are inherently temporary and the onus is on the occupier to bring the occupation to an end within a reasonable period of time necessary to secure stability and a safe transfer of sovereignty to the occupied people. Just keep in mind some of the interesting historical lessons that we can draw from. The Americans were in Japan for approximately 10 years after 1945, before the occupation ended. The Allies occupied Western Germany for approximately 10 years. The Americans occupied Iraq, depending on your criteria, for somewhere between 8 and 11 years. The International Committee of the Red Cross has recently called Israel's occupation the world's longest sustained military occupation in modern history, unquote, and there is no end in sight. Placing 250 civilian settlements, which house approximately 620,000 settlers, is a concrete statement of permanence. Every Israeli prime minister since 1967 has left office with more Israeli settlers in place than when he or she entered office. Last week, the Israeli Prime Minister stated in the Knesset that, and I'm quoting, in any agreement, or even without an agreement, we will retain security control over the entire territory west of the Jordan River. Third, the rule that the occupying power must act as a trustee or fiduciary with the best interests of the occupied people in mind. I don't think I have to dwell on this for very long, or mention the obvious, the confiscation of private and public Palestinian lands for Jewish-only settlements, and the colonial-like regime in the OPT of two separate and deeply unequal systems of laws, roads, justice systems, access to water, utility services, freedom of mobility, political and civil rights, enjoyment of security, the pillage of natural resources, living standards, and segregated communities, all differentiated on the basis of ethnicity 
and of citizenship. Or, I should mention as well, the 10-year blockade of Gaza that has transformed a fragile economy and an abysmal living standards to profound humanitarian crisis. Fourth, the non-compliance with the foundational laws of international law. Aside from the 150 or so resolutions of the General Assembly pertaining to Israel that have gone unheeded, the UN Security Council has passed scores of resolutions, I count 50, since 1967, stating that the Israeli settlements are a flagrant violation of international law and the annexation of East Jerusalem is unlawful and has no force or effect. All of these have been, have been persistently scorned, ignored, and defied by Israel, notwithstanding the commandment in Article 25 of the UN Charter that, quote, members of the United Nations agree to accept and to carry out the decisions of the Security Council in accordance with the, special, with the present Charter. So where does this all leave us? Let me bring my, my lecture to a close by quoting Abba Ibn, who was at one time the Foreign Minister of Israel, and who was by turns masterfully eloquent, elliptical, and often cynical. He once said, international law is a law that the wicked do not obey and the righteous do not enforce. Given the yawning gap between law and reality in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, there's much truth to what he said. But the cynicism does not have to be destiny. If the argument that I'm advancing today has legal coherence, then that means that it has the potential for achieving political legs through the conscience and activism of civil society and diplomatic win through the, those countries who take the promise of self-determination and international law as a commitment for justice rather than a sword for power. What I am proposing would have universal application and would offer a key to deliverance for other situations of prolonged occupation with no sun on the horizon. My final thought, in one of his finest passages, Martin Luther King Jr. criticized those who live by his words by a mythical concept of time. He was speaking to those who cautioned the American civil rights movement in the 1950s and the 1960s from moving too fast, from expecting too much too quickly, from being far too impatient and too unsatisfied with their incremental gains and from reading the American Bill of Rights in too literal a fashion. If I've been able to make one point today, it is that international humanitarian and human rights law does not and should not recognize a mythical sense of time when it comes to fulfilling the decades-old promises that the world community has made in the Middle East, which it now needs to deliver. Thank you very much. Points uh, from you. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Michael. I enjoyed your your, your paper and your presentation uh, very much. As I've been told, time is short. I just have five five points. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a point a minute. Try and cover it in one minute. Already made your first point. <laughs> so. Um, my first uh, uh, point is, is uh, the language we use to describe Israel's prolonged presence in the West Bank and Gaza. You use the word occupation, but others have used apartheid, creeping annexation, conquest. We've had previous UN special rapporteurs. Uh, John Dugard used the word um, apartheid, and there was in a South African government study, and there was a book that was produced, and I think Richard Falk used occupation and also apartheid, and then he came out with another study uh, recently. So, and also tying into that is what, how, would, how would yours differ to, to, to what they um, have said? My second point is authority. Um, which body would ultimately decide 
who has the, the, the correct uh, view? Is it, uh, would it be the UN Security Council would come and say the occupation is illegal for whatever reason, or would it be the UN General Assembly, or would it be the International Court of Justice? My third point is about the precedent you mentioned. I can say a lot more about, about Namibia, but just on the points of the fact both the UN General Assembly and the UN Security Council had revoked the mandate before it went to the, to the International mm -hmm. Court of Justice, and we haven't had any, uh, any UN body, I believe, come out and explicitly say that the occupation as such uh, is unlawful. My fourth point is a question of time. Is time really that relevant, or do we need to do an empirical analysis? At what point did, was there a decision made by Israel to stay in the territory? Can we go into the archives, look for cabinet discussions where there was a decision made, you know, we're not, we don't want to leave... Perhaps after the, the Sinai withdrawal, we're, we're going to stay in the West Bank. Maybe that, that's, that's a, a point you could look at. And then finally, and most importantly, uh, is the Palestinians uh, have to take the initiative. And I say this because of, a, of, of, a, of a, uh, an example I've, I've, I've recently learned about. Uh, in 1982, 1983, the British government actually drafted an advisory opinion uh, for the Palestinians, uh, they, this was a, a, an initiative by Jordan and Egypt, Boutros Ghali and Prince Hassan, and they met several several times in London. I think Douglas Hurd was the foreign secretary. And the, the question was about the settlements, mm -hmm. and whether it, the settlements were unlawful, and the British government went and drafted this opinion, and they had the support of even the Americans and the Europeans. Um, when the Jordanians presented it at the Arab uh, League summit, I think it was in Casablanca, the PLO opposed it and vetoed the initiative. So, uh, and that's my, my final point. Excellent. A model of uh, brevity. <laughs> Valentina. Oh, uh, okay. So this is a chance. Thanks, th thank you so much, Professor Link. Uh, this is a chance to advertise this um, a bit. So the hope is, and I, I'm still convinced that the, the remarks I'll offer very briefly will be compact and compressed now even further, um, are complementary um, and based on the report in any case, so uh, whatever uh, appears a bit brisk, um, I'm happy to discuss further. So it, three things. Um, what Israel is doing, what, is, what law is applicable, and what law is actually being applied. And thirdly, um, and, and, and I'll just only flag that, a lesser known enforcement logic um, taking place uh, within EU-Israeli relations. Um, so in the reports that, that I authored, I take a purposely conservative approach to the law, considering how the law is understood and practiced by those political actors that we often try to compel. Um, so a perspective on legal process and law at work as opposed to law as it should be or as it is in textbooks uh, sometimes. So the report proposes the term unlawfully prolonged occupation as a descriptive term intended to capture an occupying state seeking to permanently transform the international status of the occupied territory, in our case through annexation. Such actions not only fundamentally erode the protections of occupation law, uh, but violates the independently co-applicable prohibition on the acquisition of territory by force. That's the use ad bellum, that's the UN Charter. So the very state of occupation, which is prolonged, continued, and premised on that use of force to acquire the territory, the illegal use of force, constitutes a violation uh, of that prohibition. Um, 
the Jennings Treatise from 1963 is a key seminal work on this, and 1963 is a key date because it predates um, our date at hand. Um, but importantly, this prohibition has considerable normative pull, much stronger normative pull than human rights, humanitarian law, or criminal law at that, which um, is significantly politicized. It's important, and we try to do this in the report, that there are essentially seven or eight situations of occupation which uh, fall into the unlawfully prolonged <coughs> occupation category, in uh, my view, and quite arguably. Um, there are situations of occupation that entail de facto or de jure annexation, which includes that of Israel, um, Crimea and uh, the Western Sahara, and then situations of occupation that supports uh, a proxy government or secessionist movement um, in separation, Northern Cyprus, Nagorno-Karabakh, Transnistria, South Ossetia, and Abkhazia. Also, there's the DRC situation of occupation intended purely to exploit natural resources. Uh, worth mentioning as well. So in that, the point here is that Israel and Palestine are not alone, um, and that is useful in international law in terms of getting the law uh, to work as we want it to. The report's vantage point um, is also um, in looking at Israel's unlawfully prolonged occupation um, is based on a host of new archival material that has been unearthed by Akevot, the uh, Institute for Israeli-Palestinian Conflict Research. Um, I'll leave it at that, uh, but the most important bit of that is essentially uh, long-standing premeditated positions going back to the early days of the occupation about the non-applicability of the Fortuneva Convention, uh, the banning of the use of the term occupied territory, and explicit acknowledgments that Israel is violating the international law that is applicable and therefore, of course, is consciously, intentionally undertaking a demarche to blur out not only um, the international law applicable, but also its own positions on the international law applicable, and we see that in practice throughout the years. That's great. You're out of time, Frederick. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, uh, I mean, it's a bit daunting to be, uh, you know, coming in from a political science perspective after three lawyers, uh, and that puts me a bit in a difficult position, but uh, I'll, uh, I'll vent my, you know, doubts uh, loudly, and I pose them to you, uh, hoping that you can resolve my own uh, identity uh, crisis in a way. Uh, because in a way, in uh, uh, international relations, we take it for granted that, that there is a yawning gap between uh, law and reality. That's our starting point. Um, and therefore, you know, I, I would like to push you a little bit uh, more to understand how international law can exert agency on international politics. Uh, and I, I only have two very short points. I feel a bit, you know, <laughs> limited, but, you know, uh, I'll go with uh, two short ones. The first one is about the current international context, which seems to me that uh, is characterized by the fact that we are rewriting <coughs> the rules of the game. And therefore, the risk is 
that if we rewrite a tiny little bit of the rules, it's the whole book that is being rewritten, and not necessarily in the di uh, direction that uh, you know leftist progressive people might like. Uh, you mentioned the fact that self-determination, sovereignty are key aspects, but if we look at Ukraine and at the whole debate that it has engendered in IR about the return of geopolitics, mm -hmm. um, that, that, that's not the same. Uh, my second point is about the domestic politics in Western countries. Uh, because, uh, I mean, you have mentioned international law um, if you forgive me, predominantly as an instrument for civil society. But this seems to me, you know, to put it in a very, you know, specific and limited spot. Because to me, the real question is how to make sure that there is a political discourse that can support international law and a political discourse that has traction with the right with parties on the right, uh, because parties on the left, governments on the left, are much easier to you know, mobilize when it comes to Palestinian rights. It's parties on the right, <coughs> the law and order, that in fact do not support the international law that you are uh, suggesting. But uh, I'll stop here. Excellent. Hugh. Thanks. Let me first try to one-up Federica, who is daunted uh, after following three lawyers. I'm rather daunted after four, following uh, four university professors, but I'll uh, wholeheartedly embrace my policy hat uh, for a few minutes um, and maybe quickly touch on why I think uh, Professor Link's report, upcoming report, and uh, Valentina's report also uh, is, I think, so important in terms of the ongoing policy discussion uh, that we're having, uh, especially in Europe. And I'll try to find a bit of optimism, but I, I can't promise anything. Um, but I think, in, firstly, I think why these sorts of things are important is it does, to a certain extent, talk about, you know, it shows what the, the intent of Israeli uh, practices, institutional practices and policies uh, have been over the last 50 years. Now, I think probably for many people that intent was not in doubt, but I think to be able to once again instill clarity in terms of what the ultimate end goal for Israel has always been and continues to be, I think is quite important when engaging with policymakers to, to basically to, to show that the intent is not one of, it's not a temporary occupation. The intent has always been the permanent acquisition of large swathes of the West Bank. And arguably, I would say, to be provocative, Israel has won to a certain extent that the vision that started in the early days of uh, 1967 of the occupation that was outlined in the Akevot material that Valentina talked about, the, the vision that was outlined in Prime Minister Netanyahu's book uh, 1993, I think, um, that vision is the vision we have today on the ground. It's uh, Israeli control over... Uh, Palestinian territory and a limited right of self-determination or self-governance um, for the Palestinians. This is the vision um, of the Israeli right of the settlers, but also increasingly the vision of the Israeli left of the, of the Labour Party. Um, and I think these things are important to bear in mind when one starts to talk about uh, the Middle East peace process, the Oslo Accords, and when one tries to assess whether uh, President Trump's uh, imminent peace push has any chance of success. When one is actually to, when one is able to contextualize this in terms of what's been happening over the last 50 years, I think there's a little uh, room for optimism. 
And I think, again, why this, these reports are so important is perhaps they can start to, to shed light on some of the, the failings of the past at least you know, 20 years of the Oslo process. That is privileged process over uh, deoccupation, and that's privileged process over international law. And I think to be able to shed light on these failings is the only way that we can actually learn from them and try to steadily uh, address them. And let me finish with the, the future in terms of, you know, I think, that, again, these reports are so important is because they shed light on uh, future realities. One of them arguably is already present on the ground, which is, again, this sort of creeping de facto annexation of the West Bank, uh, including the de jure annexation of uh, Jerusalem in 1980. Um, and I would argue that this whole debate about one state, two state is a bit of a, a distraction because the, in the short to medium term, the alternative to a two state solution is not going to be a one state solution. The alternative to a two state solution will be a continuation of the reality on the ground, which is one of, um, again, entrenching uh, Israeli uh, occupation of control and a situation in where Palestinians are neither accorded the rights of Israeli citizens nor accorded the rights under the law of occupation. Um, Finally, the, the one uh, nugget of optimism, I think, you know, uh, we've talked a bit about how third parties are not necessarily that interested, interested in upholding international law. But I would say look at what the EU, look at what European states, look at the recent U UN Security Council resolution, uh, 2334, <coughs> uh, a variety of other things. And I think one does see that third party states are at least grudgingly starting to become increasingly aware of what their responsibilities are and how international law could play an important role in uh, disincentivizing uh, continued occupation. Excellent, Michael. Do you want to come back on a couple of those points and then we'll throw it open to I'll you? Try to be very, I'll try to be very brief with respect to this because I want to, I want to hear from the audience as well. Uh, Victor raised an interesting point with respect to this, what I think of as a spectrum on occupation, colonialism, uh, apartheid. Um, this debate has entered in the last four or five years, and I think um, different reasonable people whom I all respect have different points with respect to this. Let me tell you where I come from. Before I was a law professor, I was a litigator. I litigated for 10 years, um, sometimes in courts, primarily in front of labor tri tribunals. And what I did as a litigator was to try to select and try to determine what was the best argument that was going to win in the court in front of me? Um, and this is why I think I settle upon the issue of illegality of, uh, of occupation. I think there's probably very good arguments to make with respect to colonialism, and I think I may use a few of those in my upcoming report. There, there may be very good arguments you can make, very pure arguments, that this is now a form of apartheid. But if I'm going to try to win an argument in advance the paradigm that this occupation has to end, my sense is the best argument I can raise in the, in the court of world opinion, in the court of diplomacy, is going to be is that this occupation, for all the reasons that I've said, has crossed that bright red line into illegality. Uh, and we have, because we have precedent with respect to this, um, it makes it easier to be able to sell than a relatively new argument of applying colonialism to, um, uh, to uh, Palestine or apartheid to Palestine, as much as the descriptive features of what's going on there may wind up applying with respect to that. Victor also asked me, where, which body? Which I think is a, a very good question, which I didn't get a chance to address here. But it would also be all three. You know, um, you think of the route that was taken in Namibia in 1971, um, the, the route that was taken with respect to uh, the wall advisory opinion in 2004, is that you try to plant an idea 
that begins to build up in the General Assembly. None of us here would have any realistic expectations you'd see a similar kind of resolution merging out of the Security Council. You wouldn't go that route. But you would go to the Security lead to the General Assembly, and you would think uh, of asking for a, a um, advisory opinion of the uh, World, uh, the International Court of Justice if, and here's a big if, people who know this much better than I think that the composition of the judges on the Court of Justice are not the same as the word 2004 with respect to the wall advisory, and this may not be an appropriate time to do that. You know, in some ways that doesn't bother me because I think if my idea has any traction, it may not, but if my idea has any traction as a report of a special rapporteur, it will take months, years for it to begin to be build in a, in a wider debate. It will have to be accepted by civil society. It will have to be accepted by those states who are sympathetic to the Palestinian issue uh, at the United Nations to begin to build up that necessary critical mass to be able to, to wind up moving, that, moving it forward. Um, one question I think you also raised, Victor, was basically when did, it, when, did this, when did the de facto annexation start? To my mind, that's probably not as important a question. I think historians are pretty clear that if you look back now on the Israeli archives of the cabinet debates in 1967 and 1968, the debate was not to give back to the territories. The debate was to ignore that famous memo that Theodore Maron wrote, and the debate was either the alone plan or the Moshe Dayan plan. Are we going to keep some of it, or are we going to keep all of it? And, and 50 years later, with different characters, the debate is pretty much the same that's, uh, that's going on now. Um, the, um, my problem now is I just can't read my handwriting with respect. Well, while you're reading that, I'll open it to yeah, the so audience. Yes, please, please do, okay? That's, that's right, hands up, please. Have we got a microphone or not? No? Yes. Yeah. Right, sir, so you're on the front row first. And while the gentleman finds a microphone, just shout. Thank you very much. I'll add that the program director of the Palestinian Policy Network. So, perhaps I think my question is, where is resistance in your model for approach? We talked about um, self-determination, we talked about um, uh, sovereignty, but not resistance. And I feel it should fit in one of your lists because uh, it might be the other side of the coin of the occupation. Well, so, oh, hold that and we'll, we'll bunch them because we're running out of time. Another question? <coughs> if there was another question, we could bunch them. Yeah. Um, thanks for that. I'm just wondering whether you're aware of the book by Nev Gordon and Nicola Perugini, The Human Right to Dominate? I had lunch with them today. <laughs> right. And I th yes. I think it's, you know, the way that Israel has dominated also the discourse <coughs> of human rights. And I think it's important to take that into account. There's some people know. Nev Gordon. No, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You can <laughs> <laughs> Thirdly. Okay. I mean, my question is similar to the first one. All the content is assuming the, there is agency for governments, for countries, for lawyers, for courts, for international agencies, and no agency for the Palestinian people and no agency for the people of civil society. And it seems to me that so governments are not totally independent of civil society, and therefore there's a, a role for what we do as people to advance some of these arguments to our governments so they stop behaving in the way that they do. Excellent. The floor is all yours. Okay. In terms of agencies, I did mention, perhaps not enough, but I did mention on a couple of occasions the absolute necessity of civil society taking up these particular arguments. 
that's where that's where the energy will come that will drive this forward. It won't be lawyers. Lawyers are the appendix that follow after them. And, and if I um, if I gave the impression of anything else, um, then I then I, I, I apologize for the mistaken uh, belief with respect to that. It will be the organizations, the NGOs, the human rights organizations in Israel and in Palestine and throughout the world, will, are the ones going to drive this uh, drive this forward. So that. If, if that's the answer you were looking for, I, I'm on the same page as you with respect to that. With respect, I'm, I'm not quite sure I understand the question with respect to resistance um, uh, on the way in which you, uh, which you posed it. So I'm, I may have to ask you to, to, to put that again. Colin? Well, no, but it's um, basically I, I was surprised that resistance as, as a form of conf confronting this. Yeah. <coughs> resistance in the... Uh, in the uh, large meaning of it was yeah. not featured there in, in neither the assumption nor the <coughs> principles or even the criteria. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I see there is a space for it when 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 you talk about self determination, mm -hmm. uh, because you know it's it's a, it's a right that should be ensured and practiced. Mm -hmm. uh, because as Frederica said before, like it's it's politics and law, not only law. So it's so I see uh, resistance here as. Um, not only as a tool, but also as a, as a framework uh, that should be adopted. Um, uh, sure, and, 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 and two replies. One, this, I mean, for, for better or worse, this is primarily a legal argument that I'm putting forth, which would be a legal argument that would be held in both diplomatic circles and possibly in courts. In terms of resistance, you know, in terms of resistance, you know, nothing the Palestinian, very little that the Palestinians have gained over the last 70 years, and particularly over the last 50 years, and even more over the last 25 years, has come without resistance. I mean, resistance has been the driving force. If any of you get a chance to read the excellent new book by Nathan, yeah, <laughs> by Nathan Thrall, uh, The Only Language They Understand, he has made it very clear, and, I, and it's a point I had long accepted, that the only concessions that Israel has ever made is either be on the... On the on the basis of, a, of a, a military battlefield or of extreme pressure by, uh, by foreign powers. They, they only withdrew from the Sinai because of 1973 and its aftermath. They only withdrew from southern Lebanon because of a people's war there. They only withdrew from Gaza because of, uh, because of uh, the resistance against 8,000 settlers in, in the midst of 1.8 million people and so on. So I agree with you on that. And, and the, the, the argument, uh, you'll have to explain the argument expanded in Lee Gordon's book about human rights and how it differs to yours. That's the question. Lee Gordon's and Perugini's book. Okay, so, sorry, then, I, then we're speaking about a, a, a different book. Maybe, maybe, I, that book I haven't read, so maybe you can develop that. Well, basically, they talk about Israel dominating the language of human rights yes. to their advantage. That's the key premise of there, so it's it's very hard to take the legal route. Okay, and I'm I, I guess I'm saying I, I I'm I perhaps have more faith in the legal route uh, than that because I, I do think um, that the language of human rights, certainly among Palestinians, certainly even what I see in North America, which is not a particularly um, hospitable place to uh, for Palestinians, it's accepted. And recent polling in Canada, for example, shows a big gap in the understanding of human rights violations between elite opinion, which supports Israel, and, uh, and um, uh, popular opinion, which winds up supporting the Palestinians. So I'm, I'm not sure in terms of the issue of human rights if, if that is an entirely accurate argument. Yes, sir. 
Yes, I'm, I'm interested to know about uh, maybe your take on how accountability for past crimes, especially maybe, you know, the new dynamic we have since 2014 that uh, the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction over the OPT and the process or this uh, uh, approach that you're suggesting here. Mm -hmm. How does your approach, maybe to put it this way, take into consideration, you know, the accountability for past crimes that have been committed since uh, the occupation of 67? Hold that thought, ladies. lady at the back there. Thank you. Um, yeah, my question is about um, this issue of what's the right framework to be using and what's the best argument to make. And I was, I was intrigued by what you were saying about the argument to do with the occupation becoming illegal is the one that's most kind of compelling and easiest to make. And... I mean, the difficulty I have with that, and I'm, I'm, I don't have a settled view, but the, I, I find the apartheid framework appealing because even though it's novel and you know there isn't sort of precedent for it and so on, it's a framework which incorporates all of the, the rights of all of the Palestinian constituencies and which conceives of Israel as kind of um, one regime which, is a, which oppresses Palestinians in different ways. So you can talk about those in the West Bank and Gaza, but you can also talk about the rights of Palestinians in Israel and of the refugees in a way that focusing on the occupation and, it, and its legality does not allow for. So I just wanted to, your observations on that dilemma and how you think that can be overcome. Okay, thank you. And the, the lady in the red top, the one... Thanks. Um, so I have one point and one question. Um, on the when actually Israel have given up um, the 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 withdraw the two state solution or withdrawal from the West Bank territories. I think there's one clear evidence we should we should consider. Um, that Barack, uh, Ehud Barak, who was a prime minister in Camp David in 2000, made a very clear statement. Um, Claiming that the third phase, which is the final, the third phase, which is the final phase of the uh, Oslo Accords, was going to die of its own because, and and he hoped, he has hoped that Israel is not really going to withdraw from the um, from the territories it it was holding, as the Palestinians has expected, and Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, was in office that time, and actually he didn't want to withdraw at all. So that's one uh, piece of evidence. Um, and a question quickly? My question is, why do you think focusing on the legality or illegality, don't you think that helps actually... Um, Prolong the occupation because we're not talking. We're not talking. Maybe we should shift it to what is temporary and to the time limit, rather than making it beautiful and tolerable by the occupied people, so that we could bring it to an end. And the gentleman at the back there. No, oh, it's coming to you from the other side. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it's a fascinating discussion. Um, one comment on the British government position. Uh, they describe the occupation as unacceptable and unsustainable, uh, but they don't call it illegal. Um, my question is, if the issue of illegality gets big, how is it best for civil society or for the Palestinian, the PLO, to raise the issue with the ICJ? Is there an easy way to do that that sticks? Right, there will be another round of questions, so don't worry. Uh, we've, but that's four. Let me, let me see yeah. if I can quickly answer these, and I'm not sure I'm going to get all of them that, uh, that you've wound up raising. Um, you've raised the issue of legality and illegality. If I understood your, 
woman in the, in the red dress. If I understood your question correctly, you were raising the question of, does this really change the paradigm? Does it, does it really make much of a difference if it's uh, legality or illegality, or does it just help continue this intolerable situation? My answer to this is <coughs> the present situation of Israel being able to claim it's open to future, present and future negotiations. It doesn't claim that it's an occupation. The rest of the world says it's an occupation, but with some illegal features to it. That is what helps sustain this intolerable, indefinite occupation. By being able to say there's always a point in the future that we may be coming to with respect to this. You label and you get the authoritative labeling of this situation as illegal then that changes everything. Um, that, it, helps, it helps to begin to change everything, I should, I should say, with respect to this. Because that, that heightens the obligation of the world community to bring an illegal situation to the end. If it is a General Assembly that says that, if it is the uh, International Court of Justice on an advisory opinion that winds up saying that, or some other authoritative body that winds up commenting that the situation is... Is, is now illegal. Israel lives with this dual ambiguity uh, that the Fourth Geneva Convention doesn't apply, but some aspects of the occupation do apply with respect to how it treats the Palestinians. It doesn't apply with respect to how it settles the land with its 600,000 settlers. That ambiguity is what helps sustain the, the occupation and it's the, world's, it's the world community's ability to keep on saying, oh, yes, it is a legal occupation that winds up maintaining that particular fiction. So that's why I think crossing the bright red line into saying it now is illegal will, will help make a significant difference. It changes the paradigm with respect to that. Um, um, I'm sorry, I'm, and I missed part of your part of your question. Which is the quickest way to the International Court of Justice for the PA? Yes, and, and um, I, I think by going to the International Court of Justice uh, as an advisory opinion would probably be the quickest way for that to happen. Obviously, that means, among other things, civil society buying in. It means the Palestinians obviously have to accept that as a strategy uh, that they can see as being as being winnable. You know, and presently, I mean, I, I think there's confusion as to what is the strategy for going forward. Resolutions get passed year by year at the General Assembly. Occasionally a resolution gets passed at the, uh, at the Security Council as in, as in December with respect to this. We're no closer to trying to bring it to an end. And anybody who's visited the occupied territories in recent months and recent years will say that the occupation is more entrenched and the end of the occupation is further away than ever. Right, I've got a question down here. And then one here, and then one there, and that'll be it, I think, because we're running out of time. Thanks for a great lecture, Professor Link. Uh, I also agree with you that Nathan Thrall's book is fantastic, the best book I've ever read on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, there is very little um, of Europe inside the book. It's very real political, very little international law as well. But Thrall says that there is 1% chance that Trump will solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And that, uh, yeah, 1% chance. And that is much more than if Hillary Clinton would, be, would have been elected. So I would like to ask if you believe if it's more or less than 1% chance. Or if it is. Okay, hold your thought on the 1% question. We've got a question here. Okay, I think you can, can you hear me? 
It was probably better for the... Okay. Um, yeah, we're running out of time. Right. I'll be, I'll be quick. Um, I do, uh, to, uh, to just going to the, to the heart of what you were talking about, I, I don't understand in what sense Israel's occupation was ever legal for it to become illegal. Because by your own definition, uh, it becomes illegal when it flouts international law and the law of occupying power, etc. Well, it did that uh, w w days after the, the end of the, of the war. So I cannot understand uh, at whatever, was it ever legal? That, that's one very quick point. The, the other quick point is it is so terribly obvious. There must be, uh, I don't know, a legal category which explains that the, the whole project in the 1960s cemeteries is so nakedly a settler colonialism. Why are we uh, talking about, even talking about, using the term occupation, which is a misnomer? Excellent. If you hand the mic to you. Uh, thank you. Uh, one suggestion question. Uh, will you address um, the question of the legality of occupation under the uh, security resolutions? Because there is this resolution 242 and 476, which demands Israel to withdraw from the occupied territory. So if it has not done that, so it's a very direct way to say that the occupation is illegal. It's just like Namibia. In Namibia, there was a Security Council resolution. Okay, there's a question. Yeah, there. Actually, it was pretty much the same question as I think that's Rada Karmi at the front. Uh, so basically knowing when was occupation ever legal, given that, <clears throat> sorry, it was clearly established with an intention of permanence or with an ex annexationist uh, uh, purpose. And I think it's important to look at explicit statements by Israeli politicians and officials. I mean, very, very quickly, just to quote the Likud Charter, um, it says about settlements, it says the Jewish communities in Judea, Samaria, and Gaza are the realization of Zionist values. Settlement of the land is a clear expression of the unassailable right of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. So, I mean, when they don't even recognize that there is an occupation, then how can we, yeah. you know, call it legal by Thank me? Thank you. And the final question right at the back there, the lady with the Mac computer. <laughs> Uh, thanks. Uh, just a, a quick comment rather than a question. Um, I thought your argument was excellent and, and uh, definitely needs to be made um, because, uh, and, and all the arguments that, that you added to that, because the international community has a stake in keeping the international uh, rule of law going, so we can't let go of that. At the same time, I'm very sympathetic to the argument that my colleague uh, uh, here um, made also, uh, because that uh, that also builds a source of Palestinian power um, by pointing to what Israel is actually doing. I mean, nobody is offering a state on a platter uh, tomorrow. So it, it points to what Israel is actually doing and delegitimizes its human rights violations. And so uh, just uh, briefly, I think the Palestinians have to learn to live in a kind of gray zone where you use all the tools that are available um, uh, as, as you can. And uh, just to, to make the point that you probably won't be able to get a, a, a full consensus of civil society behind any one argument uh, because it's a matter of building up your sources of power to change the, uh, the status quo. 
Thank you. Sir, the final word is to you. Okay, I'll try try to answer all of these very quickly. Trump and 1%, I'm probably not in a position to be able to judge or comment on on with respect to this, but, you know, if the president went to the Middle East in late May and never mentioned the word occupation um, or never mentioned self-determination, which is something that prior presidents have always tried to include some variation of in going there, it, it tells me that his, that the attention span of the current administration is not in the same direction with respect to that. With respect to was it ever legal? It was legal when it began. You know, um, you're certainly right that the debates early on in 1967 and 68 among the, the, the cabinet were, do we keep some of it? Do we keep all of it? To my mind, when did it tip from legal to illegal is not important for us anymore. We are at 50 years and we're long past the point when I think it tipped in, into illegality. So I will leave that for historians to be able to determine when the actual tipping point is. For As a legal question, I think we're already there in, into illegality. With respect to the mention of Security Council Resolutions 242, and I think it was 476 that, that you mentioned, I don't think it said end of occupation. I think they said... Um, they said, you know, at least 476 and, and, the, uh, and the settlements. Uh, for, uh, 476, the Security Council reaffirmed the overriding necessity to end the prolonged occupation of Iraq territories occupied by Israel since 1967, mm-hmm. including Jerusalem. Yes. And so in 1980, already prolonged occupation. Okay. I, I stand corrected, and thank you for that. And... Um, I'm sorry, I, I've lost the The issue about settler colonialism, I think. Settler, well, settler colonialism is a, is a again, not something I, would, I, I dwell on with respect to the law that, I, that I'm involved in, but um, I come from Canada, um, and uh, we're having a difficult and very necessary conversation with respect to our reconciliation with our indigenous people over settler colonialism, and I recognize that it has similar sorts of features elsewhere in the world. Well, I'd like to thank Michael, uh, Valentina, Frederica, uh, Victor, and Hugh. I'd like to thank you all. Uh, We should get the air conditioning sorted in this room. (laughs) Thank you to our speaker.